Hello, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. As always, I'm Spencer, and I'm here with my illustrious partners in crime, BJ and Sarah. How's it going, everybody? It's going well, Spencer. Um, we have Sarah back for another uh, return to the Mangum Reads podcast, bringing some some weight and some scholarship to, to our uh, random musings on things that we like to read. So it'll be nice to have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, um, along with having read the book. Um, Sarah's very knowledgeable on the subject, so so welcome. Um, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. I'm not sure how much uh, weight and knowledge I bring, but I do bring um, wine and vague cynicism, so that should be enough. <laughs> I was going to say, of the, of the doctorates here, and you're, I guess, ABD at this point, uh, your doctorate is the most relevant to this one. That's what they tell me. Well, I'll find with your glass of wine in hand, you'll fit perfectly well in our drunken ramblings. So don't worry about that. Okay. Well, having pretty much thoroughly tired ourselves out by going through a full-fledged novella, we decided to go back to a bit of Brandon Sanderson and return to the world of Stephen Leeds. You may remember way back in the day that we read the novella Legion. BJ? What do you even remember what episode that was of us? Was it was it actually the first episode we ever did? Uh, yeah. Uh, was it the first? It was either the first or the second. It was very early on, um, and because I figured it'd be nice to start you out with some Sanderson, since it was a he was an author that apparently you avoided like the plague, even though I think you would like him. Um, and so nope. it was no active avoidance. No, um, it was a. A series of short stories that I actually had access to, so we could all read it fairly easily and make sure that everybody was was on the same page and on topic. Um, we had a a different third party at that time, um, but yeah, I, I think that's what we started out. And um, we've actually read a, quite a bit of Sanderson, um, as he's been one of my favorite authors of late. Um, and in this installation we're doing the second in the uh steven lead series which has actually finished up um and the last one was released last september as i remember mm -hmm. and so maybe we'll actually finish an entire arc um of our podcasts and finish out the uh last of that trilogy for those of you who don't fit into our i think one maybe two regular listeners uh steven leads is the main character of an no original novella called legion which is a pretty creative little book concerning the idea of an individual functioning with what could be dumbed a certain form of mental illness or perhaps genius brought down to function among us mere mortals. But as a result of that, he's divided various aspects of his consciousness, knowledge, whatever else, into anthropomorphized entities of incredible diversity that allow him to maintain a wide array of skills that he uses to, well, quite literally fight crime, among other things or in this case, investigate various mysteries that are brought to his doorstep, often with a particularly bordering on science fiction or pushing the bounds of technology or reality kind of bend. The first novel concerned, well, a camera that could take pictures throughout history and time. This one goes into something that has at least a bit more bit of a connection to what could be the future of technology, I feel. BJ, what would you, you feel about the mystery that we were exploring for this particular novella? Um, I, I think that... He touched that Sanderson touches on, I would say, some tropes um, where. Just a bit. 
you know, look into the past, uh, genetically modify things and, you know, cure diseases or use the body as, as uh, computer storage or computing power or, or power in general, I think is, is a very common theme in science fiction. You have movies like The Matrix um, and uh, I'm sure a, a fan favorite, Lucy, um and no just no <laughs> not at all quite a number of other ones where you know you're harnessing the the energy and other things of the body to do things that that seem quite incredible um i guess i will say on the side of the technology aspects and the the biotechnology that they're describing um mm-hmm. it's a little far-fetched and you know probably not something that is completely reasonable um being i guess a scientist myself and having to deal with some of these things um inserting <laughs> loads of information into cells is not a great idea and i do appreciate that he did basically have that nod to well if you insert a bunch of information in cells you usually cause cancer and cancer <laughs> or what a virus does yeah exactly um it is not uh an unlikely outcome of basically what what they're suggesting and what they're doing this so, is clearly a novel that's it's written in a post crispr kind of world in terms of the idea of it being potentially possible that we can edit certain aspects of the code in a way that one could eventually do at home on a bargain basement salary but it is pushing the ultimate ends of where that technology could even theoretically go but in terms of our usual overlong spiel of the plot, where does this one? I think this one roughly starts basically at the where the first one ended. Can we? In terms of, hmm? sorry, before we get Place. into the overly long spiel of the plot, can we like just set real fast so I get a baseline and our listeners maybe get a baseline of sort of where we fall on this particular novella? Can we all do like a one word or one phrase reaction to it? Oh, please. What would be yours? Well, I was going to ask you all to go first. <laughs> BJ, after you. Um, I, I feel like one word's a little hard, um, but I guess in terms of the, the story and what we had in the first novella, I feel like this is sort of a little bit of a mid-season slump um, where mm-hmm. you still have the same idea. It's still fun, but there isn't much novel about this novella there isn't much new um and we don't really get any resolution of any of the things that we're curious about from the previous story you know about this mysterious previous you know girl woman friend who knows exactly what sandra was and we also just sort of have a villain of the week kind of thing with a little bit of progression of the, you know, what are Stephen Leeds's personalities? And, you know, they seem to all have some sort of issue and he he's sort of progressing in his issues with his personalities. And so I guess what I would say is this novella is a a bit of mid-season filler where they're sort of, he's sort of, Brandon Sanderson is continuing the arc of the Stephen Leeds story, but there isn't a lot of progression on any of the overarching plot lines, but there is the baddie of the week. Okay, so mid-season slump, mid-season filler from BJ. Spencer, what about you? 
I fit kind of the same mold. I described as being, to pick one word, cloned or transitional. I mean, it comes across as being very much the second episode of a television series. I mean, we okay, talked before so... about the first. Yeah, we, we talked before about the first um, novella being very much the pilot that he never got to do for a television show, and this comes across very much as a mid-season episode of where it has an it has some vague some vague improvements, some vague additions to the overall plot, what seems to be the, the arching narrative of the series, but mostly it is just kind of mirroring the same plot points and overall structure of the first novella and in a way that's no longer quite as interesting or surprising, but still is working with characters that are being more forwardly explored and the nature of his either mental disease or mental defect or mental coping is grown upon, is explored to a greater degree. And so that is interesting, but... It has lost a bit of the charm and the luster that was with the first book because it is very much just kind of going through the same paces. So, yeah, and I would say my one word is actually very much kind of of a theme. Um, I would say maybe suspension. Um, I was not, I did not read the first novella. As I told you earlier, I listened to the episode and sort of got a sense, <laughs> a of, worthy replacement. <laughs> a sense of where we were. Um, but... You know, it does feel, even having come into this novella and this sort of second installment, even having come into that essentially cold, it still feels like it is part of something that is in process, but kind of held away from whatever the main narrative is. Mm -hmm. And I, I completely agree. And I think it's a little bit frustrating that for a trilogy of novellas that they came out in such a uh, dripping of information fashion. And so it would have been really nice to have all three at once. And I think the first one was well enough contained that it was a good standalone, but I don't like the second one being released and then there being a long period for the third. Um, If he had just Mm -hmm. sort of packaged it all together and it's like, here are essentially three episodes in an entire story. Here's part one, here's part two, here's part three. I think it would have worked a little bit better. Um, Yeah, I mean, sorry. Yeah, if you have that, if if you have this lump of content, having a sort of pause or a breath, which is what, what this story feels like it is, I mean, that's welcome or at least can be. But if you have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this content to come out and it turns out that it is, as you said, a sort of mid-season slump or break, well, that just loses all of the momentum, really. Very much so. And I think it's in some ways just a fault of his expectations for what he was originally trying to market. I mean, this, as you said, this would have been a pretty successful Netflix uh, series that was just released in one slump that you then could binge through and explore, or even a regular broadcast television show. But as a series of novellas, the first one works pretty well as a standalone novel. It's an interesting exploration, an interesting thought project that can just operate in its own. You can imagine its ultimate resolution. But knowing there's a second one, it doesn't work in terms of the large gap in terms of several years between it, particularly when the second one does so little to move along the plot and what is only a trilogy of novels. And you don't really get a sense of where the third one is going to pick up or go either. Well, I, I feel like I... It, I think this is something that we very vaguely touched on in our episode, but I think the third one very much is going to be him either finding or searching out or reconnecting with uh, this woman, Sandra, who helped him out previous to the first novella and Mm -hmm. can address some of the issues that he's starting to have with his 
um, imaginary personalities, his uh, constructs. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a little bit more clear having read the first one. And I think there are some references of using the camera that basically could take pictures of the past to try and find Sandra. Um, and that's sort of how he got roped into the first mystery. And then mm-hmm. him talking a little bit more about Sandra in this one. Um, I think that's where, or at least I hope that's where it'll end up continuing and wrapping up. And my presumption is that the problems that he's having with his manifestations and dealing with those and new ones coming in and them going a little bit crazier is hopefully going to be resolved in in the third story. And I guess this novella helps set that up. But I guess my problem is that in the overall story, this very much feels like it's setting up the next story. However, that being said, I feel like the villain of the week style story that this is and the twists and turns that it has and the reveals aren't bad. I mean, when I say a slump, I'm not talking about, you know, drop it and not watch it. This is sort of like, okay, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's still a decent story, but you definitely know this is sort of leading to something bigger and better as opposed to a decent standalone by itself, which the first one was. Yeah, and I mean, that kind of makes me wish that I had actually read the first one because, I mean, this was entertaining. It was a page turner. It's not like I disliked Mm -hmm. reading it. It just felt... um, It felt like it was sort of set apart... Um, and a little bit, I don't want to say slow because obviously it wasn't like the plot was not slow. Um, but it, it just felt a little bit underdrawn essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, most, most of the plot here, uh, and it felt more in this one than it did in the first novel is kind of just window fixtures around a couple key actual bits of plot progression in terms of what BJ, you highlighted the central themes of what we're actually exploring for this. I mean, I was doing a little list of the key things that seem to be driving the overall story in terms of exploring his past, exploring the nature of his abilities, and exploring his relationships. And all of those tie back to Sandra. And she barely gets more than a couple mentions in this compared to her being a very central part of the uh, plot and his emotional motivation in the first novel, uh, which was a little disappointing. As you said, he now has almost like a... Ark of the Covenant-style storage facility of various strains, bits of technology and knowledge that he presumably will bring to the fore in the third novel as part of discovering her, discovering more about his history, or unlocking, at least to the audience, how his abilities work and how he's coped in this particular manner with them. But this particular book, its actual story just kind of... Well, it treaded water in terms of confronting those issues. As you said, BJ, it's really just setting up where the third one hopefully will go. Yeah. But it, I was, it was, as I said, it, it, it was really still very entertaining. It reminds me of um, at some point when I was visiting Lee and, and Levi, I believe when they were living together, um, Lee was telling me about, you know, this great TV show that he had been watching and I should, I should definitely, you know, check it out. And, you know, it, it's, you know, you have to watch it every week. And it's this long, uh, 
in-depth TV show and, and you have to pay attention and watch every single one of them. And I watched it with him and I was like somewhere in season two, like mid season. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on. And many other people will have watched the TV show. It was lost. And so if you don't start at the beginning and you just come in at some random point and watch it, it's still kind of captivating and there's still like a story being told, but you don't really know what was going on and it's definitely leading somewhere. And so to a certain Mm -hmm. extent, you know, once you're hooked on it, you want to see it out to the end and the end you know, hopefully will wrap things up in a way that is satisfactory and and lead you to that point. But uh, there are a lot of little bits and hints throughout any individual episode that are getting you there. And if you've read all of it, it's enticing. But And sometimes even the individual episodes are reasonable to watch. But there is that sense of mid-season, mid-episode where it might be interesting, but it's still, you need to progress somewhere. Um, and I think I very much commiserate where, where, with you, Sarah, like where you're at now, when I remember that experience of just being like, oh, this looks like a super cool TV show. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of the need to progress somewhere. <laughs> Let's actually start fine, in fine. on the pro- plot. Hey, I'm, I'm happy with spending 45 minutes talking about how Lost is the worst television show ever, just to, you know, tweak Lee's nose. But, you know, we can actually move on to what actually we wanted to talk about. <laughs> so where do we start out in this story? This story starts out seemingly about two weeks after the first story ends. And really, again, kind of mirrors the points of where the first one begins of where it's him in the act of meeting someone that's outside of his immediate circle, someone that has in some ways disturbed his routine and his close collection of friends that are all inside his head. Whereas the first novella started with a person coming into his home to seemingly offer him a job. This one starts with him apparently voluntarily out on a date. I I like how you say apparently voluntarily, Spencer. Like you don't really understand why somebody would go out on a date willingly, but it is sort of a function of society that you acknowledge exists. I really like how you paint me as being just utterly inhuman in this show, and I can't deny there's an element of truth to it, but I actually admit that I assume that his various aspects were, to some degree, despite the fact they were criticizing her in the moment, strong-arming him to pretend to be human a little bit more. Yes. I mean, he does not seem, like, particularly excited to be on this date at any point. No, and as we find out later, apparently he was rather dreading the moment in terms of not eating for two days to get in the right mindset to go on the date. So this is clearly not a regular event for him. And I think in some ways the novella almost implies that he's kind of been alone or even celibate maybe for 10 years now since Sandra left. Yeah, I I think that it's very much uh, part of the somebody being famous or somebody being rich or something like that. And, you know, how do you trust the people around you that come into your life once the, you've become famous, once you become rich, once you've you know achieved these things, how do you, how do you trust them? And I feel like this is sort of a slice in the well, I'm rich and I'm famous. Like, what does she want from me? Um, and him trying to sort of push back on his inner fear of that and be like, well, I'm going to be open and honest with her, and hopefully this will start something reasonable. 
he he also has the added crutch that he is, by a debatable definition, insane, which kind of interferes with his ability to interact with other people. But as you said, it's hard enough dealing with interacting with a person with the own voices in your head, particularly when you have turned those voices into people that are sitting at the dinner table with you, criticizing your date, or armed and walking around the loom looking for possible assassins. It can distract you in terms of interacting with another person. Yeah, I was going to say, we end up on in this sort of situation with two-ish people at the table um, having a supremely awkward conversation among two-ish people, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, he essentially has three partners in crime that he usually brings with him seemingly on missions, which I almost seem to imply, I think the novel kind of implies are his oldest aspects he's ever created. There's Ivy, who is essentially his, I think it says a lot about him that one of the first aspects he ever created was a psychiatrist, which suggests a lot of what he may have needed in his youth. And a female psychiatrist at that. Yeah, a female (laughs) psychiatrist who also stands in for a mother figure, which says Mm -hmm. so much volumes right there. Uh, A a essential, how would you describe Tobias? He's essentially a repository of information that is used to calm him in terms of exploring just the array of knowledge that he has. Spencer, I made this joke last time and I'm going to make it again. You Please. are Tobias. Thank you. Um, it's oh, yeah. sort of an encyclopedia I, 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 of knowledge that just man. sort of rambles you. on, but you're very content to sort of let it go because it's comforting and nice and, and you know, relaxing <laughs> to just hear him, like, natter on about, you know, whatever it is, you know, the rain tables in Iowa or, you know, the price of corn or whatever he happens to have looked up in the, uh, you know, encyclopedia or, or whatever book he is you know, focusing on, on that week. Isn't Tobias also a technophobe? Uh, uh, he has an element of that, but I think he's made, well, this is another thing to point out with each of his aspects is that each one suffers from its own form of mental illness. As right. He, as, as the first novella famously starts, I am not insane. Each of my hallucinations is. Um, Tobias is uh, schizophrenic and believes... And this is the difference between Tobias and me. I don't believe I've got a spaceman for a spaceman friend in orbit that's sending me weather information. That has never occurred. You have no reason to believe that about me. Um, but these seem to be his two oldest aspects. The third, who I also think has been around for a fair amount of time as well, is JC, who appears, to, I think even just in reference to the initials, is a stained in for Jane Cobb from Firefly <laughs> in terms of a gun-toting American Navy SEAL stereotype with essentially functions as a mix between a guard dog protector and a father figure in his own kind of way in terms of serving as a providing a degree of physical awareness and protection that the other ones otherwise lack. I think it's funny that you chose him as a third because he wasn't invited. He wasn't invited, but he finds a way to show up for every single other event in these right. stories. I think it was Audrey because she's sort of the jack of all trades a little bit and the cryptographer. She becomes the jack-of-all-trades, and she does so because she asks him to become such. Beforehand, she's just seemingly a handwriting expert, but as a result of the story, he learns that he essentially can imbue them with additional traits because she, more than any of the rest of them, recognizes that she's imaginary and can kind of do what she wants. But, as said, these the original three, Ivy, Tobias, and JC, are there at his dinner date, which rather quickly goes off the rails based on the fact he's having a conversation with three other people when he's supposed to be interacting with her, and because, while two of them are criticizing his date consistently and distracting him from the moment, the third, JC, has noticed that there is a hired assassin that he happens to know something about sitting about three tables over. So I, I think this is super interesting because I didn't 
really acknowledge this in my first read and even my, you know, two or three reads of the first book is that when he has a conversation with his aspects, he's speaking out loud. Yeah, this was fascinating to me um, because one of my favorite things actually about this novella is the reactions that sort of outside people have to him in the moments when he is speaking to his aspects. Um, Mm -hmm. And this sort of like, you get it a little bit with Sylvia, although she is clearly, who is his date in, um, Mm -hmm. on this dinner, although she has clearly been sort of prepped for what this might look like, but you get it from other people throughout this novella who have no idea what is going on. Um, and have maybe heard some rumors about Stephen, but don't really understand the full scope of it. And he will be in like full out what seemed to be multiple minutes long conversations with his aspects, with no concern for what is going on around him. Yeah, he, he, seem, he seems to be aware that it is weird and people will regard it weird, but it is such a norm to him that he just kind of gets lost in the moments. As you said, he can have multi, like 10 pages of conversation while other people are presumably just sitting jaws agape wondering what the hell is going on with this guy. Yeah, um, I'm going to break the fourth wall a little bit. Um, so when we record a lot of these podcasts, we record our individual voices essentially and put them together post hoc and so um on a recent episode of a different podcast which um hopefully will come out at some point soon um basically i had recorded something and then i was sending that file to lee to splice together with what he had recorded to make a final podcast and i accidentally shared that with my girlfriend and she listened to a chunk of it and was thoroughly confused because she didn't have the other side of the conversation. After she listened to 10 minutes, she texted me and it was just like, um, dear, did you mean to let me to share this file with me? Cause I have absolutely no idea what's going on. And there are periods of silence. Like what, what on earth mm-hmm. are you doing? This was my art project exploration of schizophrenia. I hope you enjoyed. <laughs> so, um, it, in real what, life, it's basically, it, I can also tell you what essentially happens is I have no idea what's going on. I'm really confused. Yeah. One of the things I love about the story, too, is that Brandon Sanderson really clearly set down a collection of rules for how Stephen Leeds works, about the particular limitations in terms of his abilities, about how they display and interact with the world, and the limitations in his aspects, too. And one of the most profound ones being is that he has no interior, internal monologue with his aspects. They are independent people in his mind. He can't just talk with them in his own head. In terms of how he interacts with them and how they interact with him in the world, everything is occurring in the same plane as the rest of us, which makes for some delightfully awkward moments in terms of him trying to square his own realization that he's imagining things with what's happening in reality. Such a simple thing is like when one of his friends throws throws one of his aspects an ice cream cone to be friendly. And he has to imagine that it splits into two different ones to make it work because he knows that the uh, aspect has to catch it. And I would like to point out that at least 3% of this novella is descriptions of Stephen holding open doors for his aspects. <laughs> He's very polite. Well, I feel like it does come into play. So I feel like there's... I, it, I'm not, you, I'm you not saying it, it shouldn't be there. I'm just saying it is a it is an inordinate amount of the description going on. But I think that... The, helps the not illusion but the sort of the description of how much this affects his life 
I think that's true. Yeah, because they are, I mean, it's clearly like a pause for him in his day-to-day life that he has sort of internalized and deals with all the time. But it is for like us as readers, it is a weird sort of dissonance and pause too that kind of forces us if we're actually reading through and not sort of skimming the pages where he is (laughs) ushering his aspects through various doors and in cars and like orchestrating this whole weird choreography. Um, it's, it's a pause for us as well, because that is not the type of description that we are used to, especially when dealing with sort of imaginary entities. It's interesting, too, when he does it, because I think it ties in some ways back to the whole arc of what Sandra instilled upon him, how, what kind of order she put on his madness, of where it very much seems learned and wrote that he does this. It's a routine. He recognizes that it's weird. He recognizes that it's a burden, that he has to buy extra cab seats or extra plane seats or arrange for an extra large booth at Denny's. He knows that everyone regards it as strange. He knows that it's difficult and expensive and everything else, but it is his routine. It is how he copes. It is the learned ritual by which he's able to function with the world. And so it's it's an interesting, as I said, exploration of what Sandra kind of put upon him to allow him to function. Um, that he has these kind of very set, he has to open the door for them to be in the room. He has to arrange for their comfort. He has to make sure there is always lemonade. And why is it always lemonade? I don't, that's just another, another odd repeated thing of every single drink in this is lemonade for some reason or another. I'm guessing it has to do um, with Sanderson being Mormon, but not a hundred percent there. <laughs> could be an element of that, yes. Uh, it's probably fair. I was thinking about drinking gin sours for this episode just because of all of the <laughs> lemonade that was drunk in this novella, but I ran out of energy. <laughs> well, uh, in terms of the plot progression, just to return through it, because we're exploring some fascinating themes as we uh, go. I actually want to toss something in briefly before you do that, which is one well, of the things that um, a lot of people seem to appreciate about Brandon Sanderson is how he addresses mental illness. Mm-hmm. And it's come up in a couple of his different stories and, and books and how he touches on and gives sort of a reasonable uh, airing out of what mental illness is like, what it's like dealing with it, what it's like being having that sort of part of your daily life where... You know, it's not, oh, I like things neat and I have to arrange things a certain way. It's I have to open, hold the door open for another 30 seconds because there are five mm-hmm. people following me and they all need to get through the door before, you know, I can continue. And, you know, I need to make sure that there are five other seats on the plane or in the car. Otherwise, like I can't function normally. And he takes pains to point out that this particular condition, whatever it may be, if it, if it even is, is a form of mental illness, defies DSM classification. But it bears a lot of the hallmarks of existing conditions, from OCD to schizophrenia to a variety of other disorders. And as you said, it comes across as very authentic, particularly with the rituals that he has to go through to be able to go through his day-to-day life. Um, but how I'm trying to remember right now, his date quickly spirals off once he deduces that there is an assassin in the room, and it was spiraling anyway, that, but sure. It, it, it was not going It was spiraling great. the drain, and it had finally disappeared beyond the uh, strainer once <laughs> once it was like, oh, there's an assassin over there. And it's like, all right, I guess we're done now. Um, yeah, so the date sort of escapes to the bathroom at some point, um, and Stephen is left with his aspects at the table. 
One question to ask there is, is, I think Sarah, as you pointed out, his aspects are remarkably critical of his date. Uh, they take pains to point out her various plastics and uh, deficiencies or other imagined problems and deficits. Is that, I mean, given that they are truly his aspects, they are in many ways divisions out of his knowledge and consciousness, is this his, his own commentary on his date, or is he just trying to find various deficits? Well, either way, is, is it his own commentary on his date for various reasons? I mean, I would say so. I, I would certainly, I think that that's true. I think that um, the compartmentalization that he gets in the aspects allows him to sort of distance himself from these comments. But I think we get enough mm -hmm. evidence, certainly throughout the rest of the novella. I don't know about the first novella, of course, but certainly in the rest of the novella, he says several times, like, my, my aspects can only think what I think or only know what I know in some way, shape, or form. And so if we take that as kind of gospel, which I do, I think it bears out, then, I mean, these are his thoughts about his date. So I think, what do you, what would you say to, these may be his thoughts about his date, but also in some ways a little bit of outside influence. I mean, I guess I know I've gone on dates and been in situations where I sort of have maybe not literally that voice in the back of my head, but that voice in the back of my head of your mother would not approve of this. I mean, I get that you're doing it and that's fine, but really? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that tracks with what our own internal monologues are anyway, right. how much of what we think is really sort of self-derived in some um, uninfluenced fashion. I, it, none of it really. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it is certainly can be outside influence or even a sort of like projection of what he thinks that someone else might think. But I think that the observations themselves are all there, whether he really believes them or not, or wants to believe them in the moment. Um, they are coming from somewhere internal. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to say with him, because particularly in the first novel, he described himself in detail as being, a, he, he has put himself in the role as a middle manager. He has so thoroughly compartmentalized his consciousness that he no longer sees these various aspects of himself as being part of his own identity, part of his own consciousness. He's aware that they only have his own knowledge, his own experiences, his own beliefs, but they are independent people. And... As you said, uh, I, think the, I think it's, um, well, I think one of the characters in the first novel, Monica, actually describes it as being a coping mechanism for dealing with his own genius. That he's so instantaneously able to process information, so instantaneously able to acquire new knowledge, that the only way he can function with people that are around him is to divide up aspects of that brilliance into different people, and so effectively hamstring himself from what he's fully capable of, just so he can actually talk and interact with people in a normal kind of way. But... It makes for a remarkably awkward date, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, anyway, and so from this date, um, he very shortly gets a call, or uh, he gets a call from his chauffeur, or his butler, yeah. that's acting. Wilson. What? Wilson, oh, yes. that's Yes, Wilson. Mm -hmm. um, basically saying, hey, there's some dude kind of here to see you. He's in the car. Is that cool? Um, and it's, oh, by the way, it's somebody that you've worked with previously. It's this crazy, interesting, weird, eccentric Korean dude who, um, is essentially a business magnate that's decided to try and have a rap career. I sort of wondering if it was a joke on Psy, 
um, but I don't know. It's it, it's Psy. It, <laughs> the white suit, the the st- the diamond glasses, the completely failed records after his attempts. Yeah, yeah, it's Psy. Um, and it's basically like, all right, you know, he has a proposition for you, and it's sort of somebody you trust, and so um, basically his butler picks him up in his uh, limousine, I believe, and um, his y'all, the uh, Korean magnate, basically says, hey, I have a job for you, and basically sets out what this job is and what the main theme of this this episode of uh legion colon steven leads skin deep is all Comma, about tv series yes um and it's basically hey uh, i need you to recover a body um but in this interaction we see that y'all is what what steven terms is playing nice with his aspects and I think there's there's a very telling conversation between y'all and Steven, which is, um, y'all says, well, is it a game to you? And Steven says, no, you know, it, it's my life. And y'all says, okay, well, then why should I treat it as a game? Why should I, you know, do anything other than participate in how you deal with life? It's really interesting to meet y'all in terms of, his relationship with Stephen, because I almost assumed in reading the first novella that Stephen kind of lived a monastic life and didn't have anything resembling friends or anything beyond simply acquaintances. But y'all is taking active pains to be his friend. He is interacting and associating with him, even to the way, even to the degree that he has adopted his aspects as being friends. And the aspects seem to view him as kind of a friend in some ways. We see a couple other people that at least come across as more than somewhat acquaintances, but y'all is closer than a lot of the people you'd expect to have in Stephen Leeds' life, based on how much he uh, willfully or not isolates himself. And so my question to both of you is, um, I think, Spencer, I think you're right. I think that he comes across in this in this moment as a very sympathetic character and someone who is very sympathetic to Stephen and his lived experience um, of these aspects, whether it's mental illness or what, whatever it is. Do did you on a sort of first read of this was there any sense that you got of duplicity from y'all from the beginning or was this like I don't I I'm having a hard time getting a, a sense of like what we were supposed to think of y'all now given the fact that we are already in a setting of um dates that are actually journalists and like hitmen randomly at the restaurant like <laughs> where is this supposed to fit into that system or where is he supposed to fit into that system? He seems to give us an indication pretty early that Yal is, in many ways, a front. That a lot of his aspects of foppishness are just to appear as a bunny years lawyer rather than the actual cold, calculating mind that he really is. And it's made apparent early enough on when Stephen Leeds deduces that he has given him shares in the company not as a very generous business offer to set him up for life, but to tie him to this sinking ship so that he has his own desire to fight on it. It's, you know, Cortez burning the ships behind him so that his men will fight with particular motivation when they're invading the New World. In this case, it's the utter destruction of his reputation by tying him to this meteoric collapse of a company in the, in the press and the media. Um, so I, I, I think that frames pretty early on that y'all, as much as he may appear to be a friend, and is in his own way, as much as he may appear to be a bit of a dandy in all kinds of ways, is 
eminently coldly pragmatic and was willing to manipulate Stephen Leeds as every other character seems to be to his own ends. So the other thing that I would say is um, in the first novella, you get the sense that um, he, that Stephen Leeds needs to be sort of interested to take on a case and that Mm -hmm. a lot of times people come in with sort of tidbits of information to either get him interested or excited but then more is revealed that they know about because they want to make sure he takes the case or something like that. And so the reveal of, hey, I need you to find a body and figure out what it knows, and here's a bunch of stock to pay you, is kind of like, you you sort of know by the second story that this is going to unfold into something a little bit more than just a, we've lost something, go find it. Um, and there are even references later in the novella where, you know, he's like, oh, I should contact, you know, this person that I know in Department of Homeland Security. And, oh, yeah, I found her cat. Well, it was a teleporting her, cat, so it was a little bit more complicated. Cat, yes. But again, there's the, like, people come to him with a certain problem and it unfolds into more. And even the, the more boring ones that are in um, either would be, you know, glossed over between episodes or whatever are unfold into something and are more interesting that they would seem on face value. There is more than a passing resemblance between Steve and a Sherlock Holmes character here. Oh, yeah. There is definitely a mystery the speckled band aspect to these where someone shows up at his doorstep and, you know, draws him out of his just own self-imposed inertia from his mind not being able to find a new fascinating problem mm-hmm. by presenting essentially the TV, TV guide listing description of the problem to entice him enough to explore <laughs> it further. Um, but as said, the mystery of this case is essentially to hack a body or find out what this body knows, which we, we went from the first book to time traveling camera to hacking a body. So, you know, he, the TV guide listings are particularly, particularly impressive for this particular season of television. But from there, he is enticed to come back to the company, which he quickly deduces he's now become an owner of to tie himself to whatever problem it will, it will instill and finds that uh, this collection of pretty stereotypical mad scientist eggheads are exploring various aspects of genetic editing in terms of, in this case, storing impossible amounts of information in the very coding of our cells, which, as we discussed earlier, is, well, CRISPR is a thing. We can't we can't edit the genetic code in terms of putting new things in or removing various aspects. We've yet found the means to store vast collections of non-genetic data, but yeah, this is what this is exploring in this case. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I would equate it to your computer produces a lot of heat, and so while technically you probably could cook a meal on your computer, it's probably not the best idea. And it's like, well, this is sort of technically feasible in some manner. The actual application of it is not particularly reasonable, but it makes for a cool story. And so you basically have a bunch of engineers that are like, oh, you know, we're trying to use genetic information, which is essentially presented in four bits to store large amounts of information. Um, One of the, a couple of the lead engineers make the joke that you could use your thumb as a thumb drive. um, And one of them even says that, oh yeah, I've got my laptop backed up on one of my fingers. 
and they quickly reveal that uh, one of their lead researchers who has been pioneering new methods of actually getting the data inserted, in his case, particularly with viruses, which I share the level of terror that Stephen Leeds had when they revealed the idea of using viruses to insert data into people's cells, um, has recently died under apparently accidental circumstances. And his body was placed in a morgue, presumably with vast collections of his own data on this new virus insertion technology in it. And the body itself has gone missing with a bit of a gap as to who might have taken it or what their motivations might have been. But they are deeply concerned as to what his research could be used to do because they've recently uncovered that using viruses in this manner could have the minor effect of causing vast amounts of cancer in the particular host subject from inserting random data into cells that then mass replicate as cells do when various bits of random data is inserted into their code. Yeah, and essentially from there, we're, I believe right after this, introduced to this new, um, I don't know, campfire, you might say, or uh, high data throughput that Stephen Leeds go through, goes through, which is the white room. So I'd say this is sort of the the new uh, gimmick for, for this episode, which is getting all of his aspects in one place and having them sort of talk amongst themselves and doing a, a nice little training montage slash, you know, people writing on whiteboards and trying to figure stuff out, um, a la numbers or a TV show like that. Yeah, it what certainly has a kind of like mystery palace or mystery... Um... <laughs> Mind palace. palace, I'm sorry, yeah. memory palace, whatever it is, it's yeah. all the same sort of nonsense. But in this one, there seems to be specifically like a Rocky theme playing behind. Yeah. Um, oh, there was one, there, there's some TV show that's essentially exactly like that. Um, but where, you know, the, one of the main characters has a mind palace and goes through it. And so this is very clearly like he goes into a white room and it's like, oh, so I don't have to deal with any other stimuli and I can just have all of the... Uh, all of the aspects that I've created, which are all very different, all focus on one problem. Mm. I think at this point, at least at this point, the novel is up to, I think, 47, 46 or 47 different aspects, which makes for a remarkably large mansion, given that they each have their own room. But he sets each of them to the task of essentially trying to explore various aspects of his own knowledge of where he could best investigate where this body might be and who might have taken it. And you know, with, if this was written by Dennis Taylor, it would not have been a white room. It would have been a black room with yellow stripes. Uh, fair. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it, he sort of tries to, to figure out what his next steps are going to be and review all the data that he has. Mm-hmm. Once he comes across some pretty simple enough steps of, okay, well, let's investigate whether... Well, at this point, he's kind of determined that... Uh, the company itself that he's been now a partial owner of is being investigated by the FBI and the CDC. So he contacts his uh, home, his Homeland Security contact with the teleporting cat, which I wish we'd learn more about the teleporting cat because that just sounds fascinating. Yeah, I have um, questions. Spencer, have you read I, uh, The Cat Who Walks Through Walls? No, I've not. Okay. <laughs> is this a recommendation <laughs> for a later podcast? Perhaps. Anyway, let's continue okay. with this one. So he minds her to find to confirm that the company is actually being investigated and has actually been shut down and quarantined as a result of the can- possibly cancer-causing virus being released in the world, which raises obvious governmental concerns. He, While he the wants same to make time, sure that he, y'all isn't lying to him. Yes, which he did, 
quickly determines that, as far as he can tell, Yaw is not lying as to the things that he's confirming that, well, as to the things he's actively investigating, Yaw is not lying. He realizes there are many other details that Yaw could be actively hiding from him, and kind of assumes those are in place. Spencer, it's lies of omission. As as a lawyer, you should be very comfortable with this, because it's quote-unquote, not technically lying, and everything that he says is factually true. It just might not be, you know, everything that he could say. I mean, he's not volunteering information. He's answering the questions that are asked. It also, also the key thing about lies of omissions is you should never let your co-partner realize you're making them. They tend to not instill trust. However... He also determines that he needs to go investigate the morgue, which seems an obvious, obvious enough place to start. Am I leaving out pretty much any aspect of what he has tasked his various members of his white room to investigate? And he kind of sets them off on their own, and most just get distracted and start drawing things on the walls, which doesn't say productive things about his consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, some... the, this is definitely the camera pans by a bunch of scribblings on the wall, and none of them need to make any sense or be at all relevant to the plot. It just needs to be full of something so we can progress to the next scene, which is a lovely trope that we've seen many, many times, which is sort of the somewhat difficult uh, corner and the begrudging uh, willing to share some information after sort of being badgered a little bit. Um, and I feel like pretty much every show it has the, the coroner that, that you vaguely talk with and, and get some information out of. Um, no, I mean, isn't this like every CBS show that has ever existed? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, you know, no, I just want to point out that, that this is a, a scene as much as I like the story. This scene in particular is one that my grandmother could have written from much experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. One aspect... One aspect of the white room scene I just want to hit before we go is uh, I feel like it reveals in some ways a difference between the ages of his consciousness and how varied and important they are to him. Yeah. Of where his uh, old, his oldest aspects, Ivy, Tobias, JC, a few, uh, maybe Audrey to a certain degree, she kind of puts herself into that group of the course of this epi- of, of the course of this episode. <laughs> have well-rounded characters, have varieties of skills, have integral aspects in terms of how he interacts with the world, and very key, key aspects of how he needs to be able to function on a day-to-day basis. Most of the rest of them are so specialized that, in certain cases, they can't really even leave the house and don't want to. Yeah. They were, pro- they were solutions created to problems rather than uh, aspects of his life that he divided out. So he which... sort of has a couple of aspects that are project leaders, and then they're the people that, you know, have people skills, and they're the ones that interact with the engineers doing a lot of the other work. <laughs> and, and I feel like in some ways this is revealing about what kind of psychology and what kind of circumstances he was going through at each of these times, that his oldest consciousness were nece- that he created as a necessary element of him being able to function with the world. And once he built these kind of project leaders, this necessary foundation, the ones he's created since are just as a result of him trying to solve particular problems that go through his life rather than integral aspects of him as a person. So I, he, I think it's... Yeah. A, hmm? Oh, I was just hmm? going to say, although he now, like, it seems to be running out of bandwidth and is functioning like me when I've taken too many pictures with my iPhone and, like, don't have storage <laughs> to do the next update and have to figure out who's getting the cut next. If, if to continue the metaphor, your iPhone has suddenly started to take pictures, suddenly started to take pictures on its own and create its own new folders. If you're not actually paying attention to it, sure. 
<laughs> but a, a, as you guys said, this particular scene with the coroner is tropey as shit, and I'm pretty sure I've seen about nine versions of this on either various versions of Law and Order or maybe CSI. Possibly Bones. Maybe Bones. Yeah, it, it, it's a common trope. Basically, he, you know, tries to deal with her, touches on some things, and it's like, oh, you know, this happened while you were in charge. And so he basically gets sort of free run of the facility for 15 minutes and is like, all right, well, what am I going to do in 15 minutes? How do I figure out, like, what's happened, how the body was stolen? And this is sort of where... Um, you sort of wonder like where the bleeding of his ass, him, his aspect and you know, what he can do with the information stored in his brain starts to break down a little bit because he has an aspect that it does forensic science and would be super helpful, but she's a germaphobe and doesn't leave the house and he didn't bring her along with in this jaunt and so it's like all right well i could totally solve this problem but my mental illness or how i cope with things or whatever you want to call his breaking his mind up into aspects is can't quite deal with it and can't solve the problem and what ends up happening is one of his aspects basically pulls out his phone and says hey we can skype her in and Mm -hmm. she can help out which there is much discussion about the presence of this phone, like both among Steven and among the other aspects, because this is the first, like really kind of the first they've heard about one of the aspects having a phone that like somehow communicates with the other aspects. Right. And this aspect previously had been pushing the rules. In the last novella, he'd been the first one that ever physically manhandled Steven in terms of actually directing how he interacts with the world, in terms of him putting... I think it was three or four very well-placed shots through the foreheads of several assassins that were there in front of him. Yeah, no power in the verse can stop him. Yeah, and that was um, mentioned here that that had happened. I was going to ask, was that a part of the previous novella, or was that just an assumed kind of thing that had happened at one point? But it uh, did happen in the first novella? It did happen in the first yep. novella. Near the did end. you watch uh, Serenity? Yeah. Uh, the movie? Mm-hmm. So you remember the part where River Tam basically takes yep. a look into a room and then shoots everybody? Mm-hmm. That's that scene. Actually the TV show. What? That's actually in the TV show. Okay. Well, whichever, but, you know, whenever that was, that was essentially It has the all scene. been watched, and yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but it was but, okay, and I say that in quotes, because it was the aspect JC moving his arm to help him fire the shots, it wasn't like he wasn't actually shooting the gun. So it wasn't an aspect taking over Stephen. It was an aspect basically similarly providing the right information or whatever else for Stephen to actuate the shooting. And, yeah, that's a little sketchy. And they mentioned it. And he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was sketchy, it was uncomfortable, but it's something he didn't really have time to dwell on because this plot then starts and distracts him from it. But it's kind of the first of about four separate moments of where his aspects are starting to move beyond his immediate control and do things either to him or outside and independent of him that he doesn't really have direct direction over. Mm -hmm. I mean, J.C. guiding his hand, J.C. suddenly inventing a cell phone so that he can interact with different other aspects, where he's previously said that if he interacts with more than like three or four at a time, it starts to stress him and break things down. Audrey suddenly gaining additional abilities because she wants to be more useful, and she says that she can actually 
maintain and acquire them where no one else has before. And later on, I think it's Kalyani, who previously asked that her husband be inserted in the world, just kind of inserts her husband into the world as an aspect without assigned abilities, but ready to be useful. Oh, listen, it's he's all a good photographer. He's a very good photographer and very smart and good with computers. He's yes. he's an omni 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 scientist. So he actually sort of replaces a recalcitrant uh, aspect, um, the one that imagined himself as like the king that was emperor of Mexico. I yes, the emperor of Mexico that wants to be restored to his throne and was very good with photos and, you know, computer and, and photo manipulation that was heavily mm. featured in the previous novella and okay. was just being super difficult. And so it's like, all right, well, here's another aspect. They can do the same thing. But seemingly without that one being written out or no longer existing, we've, we, we've heard before that he has at various moments lost other aspects. Ignacio and his knowledge of chemistry being one that's name dropped frequently in this novella and has seemingly lost their knowledge in the process. Um, as far as we know, the emperor of Mexico hasn't ceased to exist, or if he did, he's not at least, not, not, not yet at least aware of it. Um, but a lot of these are various signs that his level of control, and he straight says it, that his level of control, whatever Sandra imposed upon him is threading. Uh, we're not exactly sure why we're not exactly sure what it means, but it adds a certain additional element of stress to, uh, the story and how he goes about it. But, uh, one aspect uh, that we kind of left behind as we were rushing off to the coroner's office is as he's going there, he realizes that this assassin that he saw previously is not was not just randomly at that bar. She is, in many ways, actively tailing him. And he engages in what is probably one of the more realistic demonstrations of hacking that you will see written out in the media, in that there are no lines of code on the screen. He's just straight up calling people and begging and pleading for them to give him the information that he needs. And average person being a nice enough individual, he's able to acquire not only the cell phone information of the individual that is possibly tailing him, but also through the aid of y'all is able to acquire the cell phone information and contact information for the CEO of the rival company that he presumes may have hired her. Yeah. I, this sort of reminds me of, uh, if our listeners may have listened to some of our other podcasts where you accuse me of, of faking an email from, uh, the melting pot and going through all of this difficulty it was from open table and, and rather than i just like contacted open table and, and set up a, a reservation for you it was just like no like clearly you went to all this hacking trouble to do x y and z where you know i essentially hacked an appointment for you and you know signed you up for it but that's basically i knew a bunch of your personal information and had a readily available source to enforce a, a, a reservation for you. And Spencer, and if you had honked, honked your car horn at the appropriate time, you would have realized that this was legitimate. Exactly. I would have thought it was legitimate, but only would I have then later found out that in reality it was an entirely different character that I could not have known that was tailing me more. <laughs> faking, fake, faking a melting pot reservation. I'm losing the metaphor as I go here. Someone save me. It's uh, getting a little complicated. So what do... What does Stephen and his aspects, do they, I suppose, find at the coroner's office in their 15 uh, minutes? So they find uh, Watergate, essentially. <laughs> essentially, yes. There, there was a break-in of sorts. Um, basically, there was some tape on the strike plate to prevent the door from locking that um, allowed people to uh, enter 
the uh, coroner's office and have access to the bodies that they shouldn't otherwise have. And this is later confirmed um, or essentially confirmed when he reviews the footage and sees that a priest and a cleaning lady were the only people there um, at, at the time after the coroner locked up. And so he basically has two leads of who could have actually had access to the body. He doesn't really know who they are. He just knows that it's a priest and, and a cleaning lady. And mm -hmm. it's sort of at this time that we're also introduced to um, Panos's younger brother because Stephen confronts this car that has been following him that he thinks is the assassin. He sort of rolls out of a moving car, points a gun at this car that's uh, been tailing him, and instead of finding uh, Zen Rigby, the uh, scary assassin, he finds a young Greek boy that is kind of scared that somebody's pointing a gun at his face, and he demands, you know, what are you doing, who are you, and why are you following me? And he quickly finds out that it's Panos's brother, and he's basically trying to find out about his brother and sort of what happened. And I'm not really sure how this 18 year old kid found Stephen Leeds and started tailing yeah. him. Like I wasn't super clear about that. It just- Unclear, yeah. It makes for really I'm, good television. <laughs> I, I, I'm, if I was to invent an explanation, I'm guessing he may have just been hanging out outside the headquarters and, but Ah, that requires a lot of assumption to even make that work. But as you said, it makes for a dramatic turn of events in terms of playing with the audience's expectations. Um, it also makes for a bit of a dramatic twist of when, in his explorations to determine how these various Watergate burglars may have broken into the coroner's office to steal the body, said assassin apparently grows a bit impatient and confronts him directly outside, gun in, in hand in uh, black paper, uh, brown paper bag. And this is directly after he has gotten a thumb drive from the security at the um, from the security officer at the morgue of the night mm -hmm. that the body went missing. So he is in possession of the security footage um, as he is going about his business and eventually confronts or is confronted by this assassin. Right, and Which is an the other sort of key piece of information is that everybody's sort of assuming that the key to unlocking the information that's stored on Panos's body, which we sort of glossed over in the meeting with y'all and all the engineers, is that um, they've revealed that Panos has uploaded the information necessary for this viral infection or something, whatever he was working on, into his body. There's some sort of encryption key somewhere, probably, and that is probably stored on a thumb drive. And so... This is why Zen is like, hey, give me the thumb drive. Like, I need the key to uncrypt the, to decrypt this information. I do enjoy that pretty much all the people that are tailing Stephen over the course of this novel mess up because they assume that he's farther along in his investigation than he actually is and knows more things than he really does. I mean, Stephen really doesn't solve this you know particular mystery until pretty much the bitter end. But all of his opponents keep jumping the guns. They assume that he's already mastered it through his genius when in reality he's just as lost as we are. So Well, and you'll notice that he doesn't take any pains to like disabuse anyone of the notion that he knows more than he actually does. Mm -hmm. Have you guys ever seen House? <laughs> <laughs> there is an element of that in this story, yes. Yeah, 
yeah. uh, you know, hallucinations. Wow, there is a lot of an element of that. Difficult, doesn't maintain relationships well. Yeah, you, you could say that there's a possible mental of, illness going on. Yeah, can't can't function without a coalition of people about him shouting ideas at him. I, so Has all anyone, these things, but, maybe I don't know if anyone's written a paper in house about house about like what if all of the other doctors are actually essentially aspects of house and are not real in the world <laughs> i think there's something here there's definitely an element of this i was gonna say like I, I don't know how much you watched of it but that was definitely a uh plot point in one of the episodes or a chunk of the episodes where oh, yeah. um basically so, some some one of the characters dies and appears to him throughout an episode or two. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That character and for no apparent reason, Cuddy doing a strip tease throughout the entire episode as well. Okay. You say no apparent reason, but there are very apparent reasons. Um, but apart from that, very sarcastically back to the book. Um, so, yes. so we very much have a Sherlock Holmesian uh, story here where mm-hmm. the, there's a little bit of bluster and the main character sort of trying to figure out what's going on and other people sort of fairly rightly assuming that he will figure it out, but maybe assuming that he's already figured out a lot more than he has. Um, And so it's this interaction with Zen that he sets some other plans into motion that we don't really know what they are. He, it's basically a, you know, flurry of texting and sort of writing notes off screen that are then handed out to a bunch of his accomplices, you know, his Watson, his, um, oh, who's the, Lestrade. yeah, Lestrade, thank you. Um, and, you know, okay, you guys go do these things and it'll all come together shortly. All we know is that he's essentially trying to aggressively tweak this rival corporation's nose to drive them to um, to desperation and to act irrationally as a result of the kind of place that he's put them in, which is he frames as being risky but necessary to get them to act in ways that will disrupt their own plans. But we don't really know much in the way of detail of either A, what he's revealing other than essentially what they're doing, or B, what his actual end goal is by doing this. Um, and so sort of as he's doing this, um, because of sort of a bunch of random factors, he has Panis's brother with him in the car and then sort of decides, all right, I've got to sit and figure this out. Um, you know, I have to sit and play my violin or stare at a whiteboard <laughs> and throw my uh, tennis ball against the wall. Um, so or what they the needle do... out and see what we're doing here. Yeah. Uh, so they end up going to Denny's as sort of like a... Um, as we all do. I, I like that that Brandon Sanderson uses Denny's as the cultural white room. You know, every Denny's <laughs> is exactly the same. The food is yep. the same. The people are the yep. same. Everything is the same about it. You know exactly what you're going to get, and it's bland and white. Oh, yeah. Down to the sticky menus that you can just count on, covered in syrup. Um, and so again, he continues with his aspects, needing to order food, needing to have seating. Um, but he also has this inner interesting interaction with himself where he then also acknowledges that he's being difficult to the waitress because he's forcing this waitress to essentially serve people that aren't there, but also 
that because he's buying a lot of food, he's going to give her a good tip. And so she's getting tipped reasonably well for just essentially playing along with his charade. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember the, just the order of events. I remember he goes to the Denny's. I remember the, he is essentially trying to buy time so the various aspects of his plan can be in motion. Where relative to this does he go to the uh, researcher Panos's home? It's after this, but I am trying to remember if a key discovery happens before he goes to their home or after. When he realizes that the when he realizes essentially, I don't know why I'm being not spoilery right now. But when he realizes, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, when he realizes that he's been bugged. I think it happens roughly at the. Den- I think it happens before he goes to the. Den- well, I think it's. Actually, a- I think it it's after he first uh, meets with. Uh, Panos's mother. Um, I think you're right. And it's somewhere in this general time frame, though, yeah. right? So I think he goes and meets with uh, Panos's mother. They sort of have a conversation that you know she didn't like that her boys are atheists, and you know that makes her uncomfortable. And he was working on things, and she sort of eventually, in talking to him, warms up to to Stephen Leeds and is like. And he eventually asks her, like, do you have the key to uh, you know, decrypt your son's information that, that he stored in his body? And and she basically says, no, you know, he didn't give me anything. Like, I don't have anything. Um, and then he leaves and um, he then realizes basically that Zen was following him, this this uh, hit woman was following him before he got the job. And so there has to be something else going on. And so he sort of reviews everything in his mind and realizes that he's bugged. And then he tries to figure out, all right, well, what did I actually say out loud? You know, he acknowledges that he talks to his aspects and other people and so he's going through his head like what did i actually say what did i do what did i write down what did i text and he's like all right well you know the plan is still kind of in place it's not i haven't given up the uh the faint that that i have going um but it's basically here that uh zen I, I think he's trying to do something else, but Zen basically uh, finds him and as the two of them, I believe, are getting back into the car after he visits... The Denny's, I think. What? I think I think it's after the Denny's. I think he goes to the Denny's in part because he realizes he's still bugged and wants to just go to as neutral a place as possible to both explore the problem and also confuse the, his particular tale. Oh, okay. Um, but basically, but she shows up, to... points the gun That's at right, him, yeah. and is like, all right... You know, you're going to step out with me, uh, you know, switch seats, and then the kid's going to drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, this assassin continually pulls one over on him about three times over the course of this novel. This one is legitimately one of the most clever in that I did not really see it coming. It had in many ways been foreshadowed with him constantly opening doors and his assassin being very well read as to aspects of his own personality from it being documented by psychologists everywhere as their catnip case. But I wasn't expecting it as he calmly opens the door for his aspects. She slams it and orders the guy to drive off immediately, leaving essentially half of his mind on the curb. Yeah, and the extent to which that ends up leaving him 
bereft, but also kind of without recourse was something that I was not really expecting. I mean, I know that we had gone, th- we have gone through this whole story and for you both two stories, but for me gone through this whole story, kind of figuring out, okay, what are the extent, what is the extent to which he can function without his aspects? Like what do they do and not do? How do they function with the, with the world? But it also like in the back of my mind, it was always lurking that like, well, I don't know. There's still imaginary parts of him. So if Mm -hmm. he just like tries hard enough, they will be wherever he is. And this really refutes that in ways that I was not expecting. It's even interesting to see when the aspects try to force themselves back in to try to catch back up with him when JC's running alongside the car. Yeah. That his mind tries to desperately insert them back into his situation, but he's still grounded by his own forced reality upon them. As JC's briefly running at 40 miles an hour to catch up with the car until he realizes, <laughs> oh, wait, we're going 40. Well, Crap, oh, right. The, phys- the physics of that really don't work. Well, it's also funny because it wasn't him that did that. It was he's sort of willing to suspend disbelief for his own functioning, sort of, mm-hmm. because it's Audrey, I believe, that says, wow, I didn't realize that was possible. And he goes, oh, wait, no, <laughs> yeah. it's not. Damn it. Why did you have well, to do is- that? Which is delightfully ironic given that Audrey is the one who's most aware and accepting of her own imaginary nature and most willing for him to add things to improve her life or change her life. Well, there becomes a sort of twist on the quote-unquote most accepting of her imaginary nature. Um, that <laughs> it's did, her mental illness. I, yeah. That, yeah. And which also, I have to admit, seemed a little thrown in there, the fact that it was like never really addressed again throughout the novella, but in this sort of narrative that all of his aspects have their own mental illness, he finally figures out that Audrey's is not, is wrapped up in her seeming self-awareness that she is imaginary, but it's actually her believing that she's a real person and that that real person believes that they are an imaginary person. Is that more or less correct? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. That's that's basically um, it. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that again, this is this is episode two, um, and in the pilot, he discusses how each one of his aspects has a mental illness associated with them, as sort of Spencer mentioned. And so, right. this is a second episode mid-season revelation that it's like, oh, the one aspect that I thought was comfortable with my life and sort of on board with me it's actually her mental illness that, you know, she believes that she's fake. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that it wasn't really addressed again, I think is a consequence of it being more heavily addressed in the, in episode one, whereas in episode Mm -hmm. two, you've had that exposition. And so that a repeated exposition is unnecessary. No, I guess that's fair. I was not commenting so much on the idea that all of the aspects have their own mental illness as to the specific nature of Audrey's mental illness. Right. And that's what I'm saying is because in the first novella, it was Audrey is the only one that seems to not have some mental illness. She seems to be, except that she's an aspect of me. Right. I, I I guess I understand what you're saying. I guess my only point is that, like, even as 
even knowing that there was that exposition in the first novella, I would have expected the kind of the realization of Audrey's specific manifestation of mental illness to have longer reaching or more discussed consequences for Stephen. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's in episode three. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's, it's uh, TBD. I don't know. What? Maybe that's and, all of episode three. <laughs> and I did find it interesting because it, it comes across as a bit of an, Oh shit moment. If it's a big, bit of a surprise, it's revealing about a character. It's kind of shocking that he's not himself pondered this previously in some ways implies how limited a relationship he has with his more recent aspects. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting they didn't explore it further because they dwelled heavily on JC slowly trying to mentally cope with the fact that he's convinced that he's real and needs to go through elaborate mental gymnastics to make that work. The amount of time that was spent dwelling on JC and his kind of existential nonsense in the first Navy SEAL, or in the second when he's like <laughs> Time Ranger, no, or, or he, he's a Navy SEAL, no, he's a Time Ranger, no, he's. Oh, he can't be that because then all of you would be time rangers, and that's too much to take. Right. <laughs> there are reasonable, reasonable limits in my psychosis, people. Come on. I can only accept so much. But I, I found, in some ways found that disappointing because JC goes through it, and it's interesting enough, but it's harder to take his character seriously. Whereas Audrey, I found her sudden reveal and what that could have meant a little bit more interesting, of it, uh, in, could have been a more interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, I, I, but, I think that that's sort of the. Uh book nerd bitching in you where it's like oh here's like an interesting part like why wasn't it revealed even more where you know fine it's a novella whatever right and i will say you will this is maybe the only time you'll overhear this if you ever invite me back but um this is the only time that i will agree that we need more of the book nerd bitching about this particular thing in this exact situation (laughs) (laughs) a limited endorsement i understand (laughs) Um, but as said, the assassin jumps back into things, takes away half his mind in terms of half of his knowledge and abilities, and leaves him with a thoroughly out of her comfort zone, Audrey, and the brother of a programmer who offers little to this story other than stereotypical teenage angst, um, and takes them off essentially to an isolated farmhouse to, according to her, keep them out of the way for three weeks. Until all this AKA shoot you when I get specific instructions to do so. Yes. And so basically she ushers him, them, I think just him into a basement and is sort of like, all right. I think it's both of them. Um, you know, ushers them into a basement. It's like, all right, we're going to keep you here for a while. Um, and then takes him off by himself and is like, all right, you know, what do you know? And starts interrogating him a little bit more. And he basically says, I'm so much smarter than you. And, you know, my aspects are all around you. Look, you know, over there and over there and over there. You've heard that I'm a genius. Aren't you worried about, you know, the amount of effort that I've put into getting you into this exact position? Which, again, you know, is uh, very... A little bit tropey and kind of has the uh, feeling of Sherlock Holmes right above the falls. Well, and I think it's it's worth noting, too, that one of the things the novella really does a good job of in these moments when he is really without his aspects and therefore without resources is to depict the panic that he feels in those moments. And so this is kind mm-hmm. of like the actions that you're describing, his sort of 
wild punch swinging threats that he is giving are very much a sort of act of desperation to just sort of buy time um, Mm -hmm. in the hopes that the plans that he put forward earlier are going to pay off in some way. It's interesting as well that one of the most repeated uh, motifs he has of his character is to consistently repeat that he's not insane. Later going to, maybe I'm crazy, but I'm still not insane. In the end, though, it's his own insanity is what he is the one of the few tools that he can use in these moments. It's his own specter and reputation and his own legitimate difficulties with respect to it that he can use upon other people. Because it's one of the last things that he's left to him that is actually his when all other aspects of his personality are taken away. I also enjoy that his assassin, so overprepared, is essentially cursed by her own overpreparation. For she so thoroughly studied her subject that she has, in some ways, uh, stereotyped and and uh, assign various aspects of her own assumptions about craziness to him, and that ultimately leads to her downfall. Well, I say downfall. His ultimate resolution to this problem I found, well, how about you guys? Did you guys expect him to essentially engage in a hostile buyout to solve the situation? No, I, I definitely didn't expect, I mean, I guess reading it for the second or third time, like I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't expect <laughs> it the first time I read it. And it was... Um, actually very reminiscent of uh, another book that I particularly like where the character, the main character actually uses his wealth because we see a lot of characters and I think that the sort of joke tossed out was Batman um, that they don't really use their wealth. I mean, Batman uses his wealth to like buy a bunch of tools and do a bunch of R&D, but like... You know, I don't know of any pieces of, you know, either the comics or the TV show, not that I am well versed in them, but where he just like, all right, well, this other company is doing some awful things, so I'm just going to take them over and, you know, they're going to do good things from now on. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a much more real and reasonable wielding of one of the powers that he has, which is fairly enormous wealth. And... So basically what Stephen Leeds does is the messages that he got got to y'all that that he gave to his butler, Wilson, were to tank this company that he thought that Zen was working for and then buy it outright. And so now he's the president of the company and he can say, um, hey, assassin that this company hired to kill me, how about you not do that because I own the company now? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, to her endless amusement, appears to actually work. Um, um, I, I think it's kind of telling um, that there are a number of TV shows that go with this where there are uh, either thieves or assassins or, or you know some presumably evil class of characters that are, you know, essentially they do a job and they do it very well. And she does a job and she does it well. And, you know, Uh she doesn't kill indiscriminately. She doesn't want to kill Panos' younger brother. She doesn't want to kill random people. And it's like, all right, well, now that you've taken over the company, I work for you. And that's fine. Yeah, she's a consummate professional. This is an aspect of her job. She works on a particular pay. She essentially is still working for the company that hired her. It's just now under new management. Yeah, she is like punched in. And whatever the shakes are, she's going to roll with them until she punches out again. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in this scene, we sort of uh, get 
the majority of the resolution of the story. He's no longer in danger. He's sort of figured out some of what's going on. And now we can get to the denouement that we so desperately want of, you know, what's actually going on with the body. Mm-hmm. And so as I feel like Brendan Sanderson is very much fond of, he has two twists. Mm-hmm. So the one twist that, you know, we just revealed was that he, that Stephen Leeds took over the company. And then the second twist is what actually happened to the body? Because if it's not some other company stealing it, well, somebody had to steal the body. What was it? And Audrey, deducing it from the signatures, from the particular letters on the various notes that have been st- put in the brother's pocket, confirms based on the time entries of the uh, maid going in to clean the various rooms that it was actually the mother of the programmer that had gone in there for reasons of her own religious faith to prevent the, her son's cremation to uh, hijack and steal the body and apparently, I guess, bury him under the flower bed where she's put the tomatoes? Yeah, I think that's the uh, implication. Um, that the the person that the priest that they assume was impersonated um, to steal the body was actually the the, the family priest and the cleaning lady who sort of set all of this up was actually Panis's mother and they sort of revealed it's like oh well she was a cleaning lady in her former lifetime and so what he thought was an, initially a um, somebody undercover it was curious to him and this was actually mentioned that oh well she actually did do the cleaning and, you know, she cleaned the bathroom. She did all these things along with putting the tape over the strike plate in, you know, a very Watergate fashion. And she signed mm-hmm. off on everything. And so on a second read through, I noticed all of those things. And it's like, oh, interesting. You know, while he was waiting for Tobias to relieve himself and so he's kind of hanging out in the bathroom when and has nothing to do he's like oh you know he's looking over that the the cleaning staff actually you know signed off on everything and so that little tidbit was there and it just sort of took time to eventually work out um Mm. and so he sort of as best he can resolves this you know Hannes' mother doesn't want him cremated, but he needs to do something with the body where the government is basically taking the body and putting it on ice for an indeterminate amount of time till they can sort of figure out exactly what was done with the body and unlock all of the information there. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, uh, as a result of him also exploring around and previously observing something that was missing from these walls that are eventually essentially just filled with various memories and aspects of the family, including various religious notes, uh, he finds a bit of a gap. And having previously been forewarned that the programmer in question was fond of Rube Goldberg machines, uh, essentially pulls a switch, reveals a little secret data thumb drive, and in the epilogue, cracks it to reveal that our particular researcher had indeed progressed a little bit farther than people really thought in terms of uh, his development of data insertia, bacteria, and viruses, and has rather proudly potentially infected all of mankind. Yeah, and sort of he basically transformed a, you know, essentially common cold virus and so, um, and started shaking hands with everybody and has now distributed this bacteria with information on his research essentially throughout the world 
but the key to that information he holds. And mm-hmm. so basically Stephen Leeds sets it up that this his younger brother that holds Panos in such high esteem that, you know, worships him as a hero will receive this information once he graduates from college because as soon as you graduate from college, you're ready to tackle the world and have all the knowledge <laughs> necessary to uh, set up a life of uh, changing the world. To fulfill his brother's dream of essentially curing disease by means of using these inserted viruses and bacteria to in, uh, immediately provide immunization to anyone everywhere with respect to any condition that they so wish. And I will say that using viruses to attack bacteria was very much thought to be the linchpin to curing many, if not all, diseases for quite a long time. And it's actually used in, in medicine and, and used in, in uh, interventions to this day, but it never ended up, unfortunately, being the linchpin that many people thought it would be um, quite a number of years ago. So the sci-fi of this is reasonably well based in uh, some sort of reality. You know, it's not exact reality, but it's close enough that it would have done very well as a uh, fun little TV show. And this world-changing bit of data is again added to Stephen Leeds's collection of what, from the previous novella, is a camera that can take pictures across time and also a picture, quite possibly, of Jesus of Nazareth. So, he, Stephen Leeds has got a growing collection of information that would pretty much rock the world if he ever chooses to reveal it at key moments. But uh, that effectively wraps up our plot for this uh, novella. Well, Sarah, you got something you want to say? No, I mean, I have I have things I want to talk about, but I don't have anything that I need to say at this moment. Um, well, no, and here, and here we're going into just various thoughts and moments and themes that we found interesting. Uh, you got one to start us off with? Well, I'd, I'd like to actually, I have a question that I'd like to ask, but I think first I'd actually like to start with just the sort of like on a pure enjoyment level, do you each have a favorite sort of scene or moment or line or something in, in the novella? Hmm. BJ, you got one in mind? Um... I'm trying to think because I did. I, it's something that that I think I I started in and the this episode actually you know our first episode you know favorite scene and favorite line and I completely dropped that and forgot to bring it up. <laughs> I, I am here. I am here. I am the ghost of episodes past. So yeah. Come to revive these segments that I, you have I lost th- along the way. I definitely thoroughly appreciate that. Um, I I think that's definitely a good <laughs> thing to bring back. Um, I think my favorite line is um, Yal's line, where he says, well, they're not a game to you, are they? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that that's such... It gives you a much better understanding of both Stephen Leeds and Yal and the world in general, where you you get this... Infer- like, an understanding of how little the world expect accepts Stephen Leeds and his, let's say, eccentricities, where you have somebody who clearly has eccentricities of his own. You know, he's a very successful businessman, and yet he insists on having a rap career. And, you know, there are 
presumably a much fuller aspect of this character, but he understands and accepts Stephen Leeds as who he is and says, this is who you are, this is an aspect of you, and so I will treat you with respect by treating you as you deal with the world. Hmm. Spencer, yeah, Spencer, what about you? Uh, I'm going to mention an odd one just because it's a scene I want to talk about just because of what, how it comes across as being an absolutely extended non sequitur. But his speech about infinity that ends with uh, whenever you're being confronted by dark moments, but what you can and can't accomplish, just remember your infinite Batmans. It's just oh, when he's oddest... just bullshitting J- Dion while they're stuck in this underground cave that they can't get out of. Yeah. <laughs> It's like three pages just out of nowhere. He just starts lecturing this kid about infinity for no particular reason other than to distract him. And I guess it succeeds because the kid acknowledges at the end it's the weirdest motivational speech he's ever received. But I almost (laughs) just want to ask you guys later when we get to it about this is one of about two areas that either were intentionally just random or are very directly the author wanting to say something to the reader real quick. And I'd be curious yeah. to see if your your guys' interpretation of them later. Well, I mean, I, I, we can talk about that now if you want. I have particular opinions on this exact uh, section. I, I want your favorite. I want your favorite senior line first. Well, so I have to say, I'm, mine is a little bit in line with BJ simply because um, I have, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I've been intensely interested in other people's reactions to. Um, Stephen and his aspects from an outside position. And so, you know, we talked about y'all for, um, and, and his particular reaction for an extended period of time. But I think actually as much as like the scene itself was super hacky, the coroner's response to Stephen in this morgue mm-hmm. with his aspects and she is supposed to give him 15 minutes and all of a sudden she's like, well, hold on. This is some nonsense that's happening here. And I need to know where this is going. I was like, yes, preach sister. This is like, this is where I am with this character. I have no idea what's happening. Like we were mind melding. I was like, no, no, really. I, what, what? Um, so that was one of the things that I was like, mm, Yeah. I I need to know more about, like, how people... I need to know more just in general about how people are interacting with Stephen. And I guess that it goes to this idea that Stephen is somewhat by necessity very much a hermit in the world. um, Mm -hmm. Because it is, like, difficult for him to function in a society when he is having conversations with a somewhat different society at the same time. But that reaction seemed to be a very genuine reaction from a character that I didn't really like all that much. Um, in a scene that was a little bit unbelievable. So maybe that heightened it for me a little bit, but I was like ready to go along with that. Yeah, brought it back in. So what I will say about Steven's sort of weird exposition that ended up with Infinite Batmans, um, and I would highly recommend, you know, what the listeners that we have to listen to some of our Whiskey on the Weekends, but that sort of whole exposition reminded me of, uh, one of our friends, How Wu, <laughs> where go on. It's it's a very intense exposition on something kind of random that ends up in a place that you did not expect going into it, and you're just like, how in God's green earth did we end up with infinite Batmans from what's going to happen if I die? 
and somehow we end up with infinite <laughs> batmans and it's semi-logical and you kind of go along with it and say okay but still in the back of your mind it's just like this is a a completely nonsensical and somewhat unacceptable interaction but okay it, it just so thoroughly comes out of nowhere it has very little consistency to any of the prior plot or any of the prior ways that Stevens interacted. He's never previously lectured about infinity or death or anything else. And then in a 50-page novella, he spends like four pages going on this just rant for no apparent purpose of where he's isolated and off on his own. And apparently when Stephen Leeds is off on his own, he goes on long how-woo kind of speeches. Yeah, I have to admit that, like, this is one of the points that, the points in the novella that I sort of skimmed because I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Um, And I like to imagine that at the end of it, when um, Dion kind of accepts what he's saying, at least from Stephen's point of view, accepts what he's saying and sort of moves off into a corner to think about it, like, that is actually a defense mechanism to get Stephen to stop talking. Yeah, I I think the, um, there are a bunch of, TV characters that do a really good job of, um, and for some reason I'm coming up with Buffy just like having something weird explained to her, and she goes like, uh, "Okay," and then just like walks away, <laughs> and then you know goes that's, that's to kind like, of a Joss Whedon trope there. Yeah, where mm-hmm. you know it's like, uh, "Okay," like whatever you're saying is perfectly fine, but I'm gonna go over here now. Um. This is a that scene. I don't really even know what to make of it. I'm not sure if it's uh, Brandon Sanderson just kind of lecturing briefly on something that he finds fascinating, or even exploring his own beliefs on death and the infant or whatever else. But there's another scene too of when he's going to the mother's house, the family's house, of where it's a scene. Much of the interactions with the mother and exploring that house feel relatively unnecessary to the book. It kind of ties into the final twist about why she ultimately grabbed the body, but he could have done that in a variety of other ways and she would have been ultimately uh, superfluous. But her role and what she represents about the kind of divide and conflict that this programmer has in himself is one of the consistent non-plot related themes that we've seen across these two novellas. Where Ren Sensen really seems to want to talk about the difficulties in squaring a technical scientific mind with religious faith and belief. And had the difficulties between those two. Where in the first book, he had Tobias even describe the efforts of trying to make faith work in a scientific mind as being inherently brave. It's clearly something that he wants to talk about because he's put these two researcher characters. He has this almost exactly the researcher character who's unscu- who's discovered the MacGuffin, and now he's gone missing, and now we've got to go find the MacGuffin without knowing without without having him there to help. And both of them are also either from religious families or are intensely religious, but they're in sciences and they're trying to make this work. So This is a very repeated trope that he's putting this in his book, so clearly it's something that seems to matter to him. You mean like a religious writer who writes a lot of sci-fi and fantasy with gods and, you know, weird sci-fi inventions, <laughs> and maybe the writer is projecting a little bit and trying to come to terms with himself? Thank you, PJ. You said it a lot easier than I could have. Uh, but but yeah, I, I the the background, and I think we've touched on this before, and we touched with this with the uh, first installation of this novella, is that Brandon Sanderson is Mormon, um, and 
I believe in a lot of his writings, he talks a little bit about his personal life and things like that. I probably should read them since I'm a reasonable fan of his, but I haven't. Um, I'm a little surprised that you haven't, Spencer, because you're all about the uh, searching the internet and reading up, you know, for 10 days on all the uh, background and, and minutia that, that surrounds uh, an author or a story or whatever else. But I guess my impression of Sanderson is he's very much a man of the current society. And as with many religions, they are not as compatible, at least on face value, with the technological and social uh, mores of our current society. And so he explores some of that difficulty, albeit in maybe a tropey manner with a number of his characters. And I mm. think we sort of see a little bit of his thoughts and his internal wrangling on meshing our society with belief. Mm. Okay. Well, anything else everybody else found fascinating would like to discuss? Well, I have a, I have a quick question. Um, just thinking about, I guess this novella, novella as well, and in conjunction with the first novella, like what, what would you both categorize them as genre wise? Uh, so I mean I, mm-hmm. um, I, I think they're sci-fi, hands down. Um, okay. And I would say that it's sci-fi, sort of in the same. It's an alternate reality sci-fi, because it has technology that sort of vaguely fits in with either our current level of technology or a little bit further with a twist and something mm-hmm. like that. It's not far future. It's not just. Dis- distant past it's not really fantasy so i would really categorize it in the broad category of sci-fi and in a more specific category of alternate reality where there are some sort of minor changes that have ended up with this um i would say that like x-men though that's a little bit further future at least in the comic Mm -hmm. books but like the 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 uh or tv show the the movies are very much modern day but with an alternate reality. And maybe something sort of unsettling about that reality. Yeah, so so I guess I, I feel like Brandon Sanderson would make a much happier, but very good Black Mirror writer. <laughs> <laughs> He's the hero we all need, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, a previous novella that we've read called Snapshot would make mm-hmm. an amazing black mirror episode i think this these would make fairly good black mirror episodes or or within that construct of something that's close enough to our society that we can very much relate to but there's something different or off or or whatever that we can address for for me if i was going to assign this to a category i'd assign it as being much more comic booky I mean, it feels to me like it's a superhero retelling of Sherlock Holmes in terms of how I feel about it. It definitely has mm-hmm. some science fiction aspects in terms of some, certain aspects of the setting and what themes it's exploring. But 
the focus around the main character comes across very much as a Byronic kind of superhero or, you know, misunderstood intellectual who's trying to interact with those who are below him in the world. That's kind of what I get out of it in terms of how, uh, what the genre it is. And I guess, so, I mean, I, I would take either of those as valid, certainly. Um, but one of the questions I had, particularly pertaining to the first novella, because I don't believe it's mentioned here, although I could be wrong, do we know where we are in these stories? Very distinctly not. Sanderson does not seem to like to assign things to a specific setting. Okay. Um, because I'm, I'm very much a sort of inhabitant of place-based fiction, and it all felt very skidgy um, when trying to figure out where I was. Yeah, I, I think yeah. he wants to be in a semi-major city, but doesn't mm-hmm. want to go anywhere further with that. Um, and I would bet that that has to do with him not living in a major city, and so doesn't want to say it's here and then mess up a detail. Yeah, the particularities of an actual place might be sort of difficult if you are living more or less the middle of the nowhere, middle of nowhere in Utah. Yeah, and and so well, I think one of the things that a lot of people had major complaints about with uh, the recent Batman films was they were very clearly filmed in Chicago, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were like, "Well, that's very clearly Chicago," and then there are other scenes that I think were fairly clearly like toronto or new york or something like that and it's just like because a lot of my friends are from chicago because i went to school in illinois they were just like oh i recognize that and then that scene took me out yeah once they switched to a different place and so yeah you can't create a new place from an amalgamation of like very well known other places like that does not anonymity create Exactly. And and so I think he gets away with that in his other novels with and and his other novellas with just being in a completely different world and having nothing right. to do with either the earth or a city that that exists. Yeah. But and, the fact that this this novella and this series of novellas occurs in a very sort of earth based and US right. based or at least northern American based. Mm-hmm. locale I found it a little bit less I mean it's less convincing because it just feels more anonymous because we are all I think more um, concerned and familiar with where we could be mm-hmm. we'll call it Miami because you know we, we don't care about <laughs> that place and it's an awful place that no one wants to visit and so we don't know anything about it and it's fine I agree that's why I live 30 miles north of it <laughs> In a much better place, I'm sure, Spencer. Decidedly so. Much less traffic, <laughs> if nothing else. I mean, I think, uh, I'm trying to think back, but I think, like, the only geographic reference we really get in the first book, I mean, besides when he spends most of the book over in Jerusalem, is that he describes the uh, Lone Cypress. But even that, even that, he's describing it from a picture. I, I think the Lone Cypress is in, like, Pebble Beach and over in California. And this kind of feels vaguely West Coasty to me, but again, it's meant to be pretty generic, and you can assign what you want to it. Yeah, it feels West Coasty to me, but that's possibly, at least this novella does, um, simply because it's a sort of, like, tech industry. There are lots yeah. of kind of competing interests in the same space. Um, so that, I think, inevitably narrows the scope of where it could be. It could be the triangle. Who knows? 
doesn't come across that way. Yeah, well, see, here's the thing, is that the, the name Y'all was not the Y'all that I'm <laughs> used to. Valid point. That nips that one in the butt. And, and given where he is and probably where he spends a lot of time, he, he's probably fairly uh, comfortable with, with West Coast uh, geography. Um, but, but yeah, I, I would say, I guess to me, the setting is large city, West Coast sort of makes sense and very much in, in the U.S. and, and in a, a reality that would otherwise be comfortable to us other than some of these minor fantastical changes. Mm. Um, very much. He, he could be a, a, uh, one of the Marvel Avengers like TV shows and it would be perfectly fine. Um, which is actually funny because one of the reasons that the TV show that this could be essentially wasn't produced was there's a TV show called Legion. That's basically, I think an X-Men or something like that kind of thing. And very, very close to what he's written. At the time he was marketing this, they had both that Legion television show and I think even a Legion movie came out roughly the same period. So his genius idea kind of got put on the back burner by the studios because there was too much competition. Yeah, which well, is also you funny. you all have been doing... Oh, go ahead. Uh, literally, that's the exact same thing that I was going to say <laughs> is we by also all means. <laughs> had another Legion that we were talking about. Um, and we actually talked about two separate other Legions in the same podcast, but we recently read a book, <laughs> We Are Legion. Um, yeah, uh, that's part of a trilogy, and we also many times reference a near and de- dear to our hearts video game where one of the characters is named Legion, and so Legion comes up a lot of times in oh. uh, pop culture and, and culture in general. I think all sort of st- stemming from the uh, biblical references, but which makes for really good radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... One question I was curious to ask you guys about, not to explore bioethics too much, but what do you guys feel about uh, the ethics of what these particular researchers are hoping to accomplish in terms of manipulating the individual, individual's genetic code for storing data, or even our seemingly trumpeted researcher at the end who has effectively infected the, the greater whole of humanity with his research? Is this problematic from an autonomy standpoint that they're engaging in this kind of uh, scientific exploration? I guess to me it doesn't bother it doesn't bother me more than the people that are already inserting like RFID chips under their skin to do like transactions and stuff like that. There there are already people that are essentially putting electronics into their body and using them currently. Um, and to say that you know he's infected people with you know his information. I mean. Spencer, how would you feel if, you know, a flu virus mutated and then you gave it to everybody you knew in the office and everything else? I feel like you'd feel a little bit bad for getting everybody around you sick, but you'd just be like, eh, it's the flu. Sucks to be you guys. I mean, I think that that's true, but it also, like, he chose to do this. Like, then then you have, you do have issues of consent. Although... I say that, and then I realize how much of my time is spent 
sort of fuming at anti-vaxxers. So maybe <laughs> I don't really care about that. I mean, the, well, there's part part of consent, but there's also like the, you know, do do you demand consent from some for somebody breathing near you? Yes. Well, then you probably shouldn't fly. <laughs> um, it, there- there is, an, there is an implication by this that whatever altruistic purposes he may have attached to it, it also has the potential to have a greater level of control and influence over other individuals once they are infected or once you have the means of putting out this particular infection, however you wish. Yeah. Man, it, he seemingly has the best of intentions attached to it, but as they discuss in here, A, it could go wrong, it could have possibly unforeseen effects. And B, it can be used by those who are potentially less scrupulous to accomplish more nefarious ends. It's a, it is a, a vector rather than necessarily a goal that we're discussing in terms of what he's engaging in here. Yeah, I, and I like I completely agree with you. I mean, again, so we touched earlier on about how this is a fantastical book. There's no way that 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 any of this could actually happen currently, and so. I think it's hard for me being who I am to say, well, what if this actually did happen? It's like, well, none of that really makes sense. So <laughs> there is no, yeah, and you also have to say, happened. yeah, like within the confines of the book or within the confines of the novella and the text, like no one is really questioning this idea of consent. And so while it might be something that we in, in the world would be concerned about, like, Within the reality of this text, that doesn't seem to be a primary issue either. Right. It's cl- it's clearly something Sanderson's not as interested in discussing. I just feel like that if this ever had real world implications, I mean, we we have. I, I, I was watching Fox News. They were talking about you know our college indoctrinating <laughs> our children and their considers associated with that. If we have find that just an idea of levels of elite control over and over over our minds. The idea that viruses that we're inserting on a global scale to alter people's genetic code just feels like it would have come up at some point or another to discuss. Listen, yeah, we're just not ready for that. <laughs> so, so one final thing that I will put in here is that it's very well known that there are basically infections that change our behavior and they are particularly associated with cats. Um, mm-hmm. which I find kind of because humorous. Because, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, to- and so... Toxoplasmosis or something yeah. like that, isn't it? Um, and so it's sort of one of those... What, wait, what? Hold on. What do they do to our... I have questions about this. As an owner of cats, what do they do to our behaviors? Um, Essentially, they make you like cats more. <laughs> oh, well, I'm fine with that. That's cool. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, but it, it, it sort of is a thing that, like, you... You do. There are certain behavioral changes and and things like that that are associated with essentially cleaning up after cats. Um, and there can be other things associated with it that we're not really sure. But it's kind of funny that one of the things that are recommended for especially pregnant women is to not handle cat excrement because of the wide ranging effects that these infections can have. Now, for all of our concerned cat listeners, these level of infections, these particular, um, are they infections or are they actually parasites? Uh, I think it's a parasite. Yeah. But these are much more common in terms of indoor-outdoor cats. It's something that's acquired in the environment rather than inherently as a result of your cat being a cat. 
but it is a legitimate concern in terms of uh, a, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily a health risk, but a health factor you should keep track of when you're pondering your, your pet ownership. Yeah. So. Anyway, wow. n- now that we've uh, wrapped up with uh, some cat tips and, you know, for our cat <laughs> fanciers. We cater to all audiences. Exactly. That's what we're here for. Um, uh, anything else you guys would like to talk about? I think we've uh, pretty much covered everything for this little novella, um, but mm-hmm. we always have that next part where we have recommendations for our, our listeners to read next that we'll be covering hopefully fairly soon in our next episode. Um, and I believe Sarah had some recommendations for us. I do. Would you all be up for another novella? I would. So I have a novella, and I I can recommend a short story instead if that works more for you, but I have a novella that I have not read and I would like to read by an author that I love. Um, So it's Nede Okorafor, who um, has written a variety of short stories and novellas and full-length novels, and actually her novel... um, I just blanked on what it's called, but her novel, um, Who Fears Death, is being, has been optioned by HBO uh, for a miniseries. But she has also done a, kind of her first rise to fame was another series of three novellas called the Binti series that I have not read and would be really interested to read the first novella for. What can you tell us broadly as to what uh, genre or theme or subject they're about? So I don't know specifically about Binti, um, but sp- her other work. So she is a Nigerian-American author who um, writes a variety of sci-fi, fantasy, a little bit of horror. Um, but a lot of what she does and a lot of the world creation that she does is based either specifically or loosely on kind of West African um, mythologies. And so she does some world creation based on that. And so some of her stuff, I think that Binti is in a like fully imagined world um, that is somewhat analogous to a kind of West African society. Um, Some of her stuff is specifically a more kind of magical realism based in Nigeria or America. Um, So she does a kind of variety of things, but I'm pretty sure that Binti as, as who fears death was, is an imagined society that is like vaguely reminiscent of a kind of sub-Saharan West African society. Yeah. So the novel Binti, which is that your recommendation or is it so there is a it's they might be out in book in a full book form now it is a trilogy the last one came out um it's a trilogy of novellas and the last one came out just i think last year um Mm. but i am recommending the first one gotcha um which is about 100 pages okay so very much novella length um, if we're up for that. Sounds perfect. Um, and so uh, Wikipedia says that the yeah, novella was published in 2015. Too. By all means. Um, and it's the first novella in the Bindi novella series. And it won um, the Hugo and Nebula um, mm-hmm. both Hell in 2015. Right so yeah. yeah, quite a good endorsement. No, 
Um, yeah, she has been gaining a lot of traction. I mean, certainly an HBO series, I think, is 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 traction. Um, but she is like multiple time um, Hugo winner. Um, I'm not sure about Nebula if it's been multiple times or not. But I will say that some of her stor- short stories, actually, multiple of her short stories, have been read on LeVar Burton Reads, which is enough yeah. of an endorsement for me. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely right. do that for next time. Um, and that sounds like a lot of fun. Cool. Well, to all of our listeners, you have your reading material for our next episode. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get that out to you within maybe the next week or so. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in listening to our other content, BJ, where can they find it? Uh, there are quite a number of places, but you can find all of our content on MangumTalks.com. Um, and that includes GOT, Got Questions, with Spencer and Lee. Um, Mangum Hoops with uh, Lee and Levi Baxter, who is Lee's best friend, his best man at his wedding, um, and pos- and whiskey on the weekends, where Spencer, Lee, Levi, and I drink some whiskey and reminisce about our days in Mangum, have some arguments, talk about random things that we like, as well as possibly other content um, that hopefully we'll be bringing to you soon. Um, you can also get this podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Um, and we post pretty much all of our content as well on Reddit um, and the Mangum Talks subreddit. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything of that nature, you can go to mangumtalks.com out of the upper right-hand corner and click Contact Us or on Reddit or pretty much anywhere else. Uh, Spencer never reads it. Um uh, Lee and I pretty much read everything you guys say, and we can probably loop Sarah in and tell Spencer basically at that time that somebody said that he should probably shave a little bit closer or something along those lines, and he'll <laughs> react to it live on air and be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Well, BJ and Sarah, I quite enjoyed this episode. I hope you did too, and I'm looking forward to talking with you next week. Come our next novel. All right. Thanks, y'all. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us and uh, keep reading, guys.